I'm excited with today's guest, who is Dr. Aditya Bragodia, who is a professor uh, in urology, urologic oncology in the Department of Urology at UC San Diego. Dr. Bragodia's focus is in patients with germ cell tumors um, and all kinds of urological tumors, including prostate cancer and bladder, bladder cancer. He volunteers his time and energy to give back to his community in a variety of ways, and he is a podcaster himself. He hosts the Backtable Urology, which is a method to educate urologic providers on different urologic approaches. In his free time, Dr. Bergodia does many things. He travels, plays a little soccer, running. He plays tennis squash, surfs, cooks. He does many interesting things. Um, and one of the things that I found most interesting with Dr. Bergodia is his interest in unconventional methods, which is what I do in urology. Uh, I had the great opportunity to uh, be involved in a conference speaking with him, with Dr. Bergodia recently in San Diego, and we hit it off. Uh, we hit it off amazingly well. Um, in today's conversation with Dr. Bergodia, we talked, a, uh, we talked on active surveillance. Who's the right candidate for active surveillance? It was amazing, you know, most patients think, rightly so, that every physician has a grind or an or, 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 or axe to grind. Um, if it's a surgeon, they all want to do surgery. If it's a radiation oncologist, they all want to do radiation. Dr. Bergodi is different, actually. He encourages people to, the right people, the right with the right pathology, to be on active surveillance. But he has his own unique protocol on who's the right candidate for active surveillance. So in today's conversation with Dr. Bergodia, we talk about active surveillance in men with prostate cancer. Let's go. Welcome to the Dr. Geo podcast. I am your host, Dr. Geo where it is my intention to help you with your prostate health and how to live longer and better with age. I have the great pleasure of having Dr. Bagrodia here with us today, and you know all about him from the intro, so we're going to get right into it. Aditya, thank you so much for being on. Gio, it's an absolute honor. Thank, thanks so much for having me. My pleasure, man. So, you know, a little bit about yourself. You know, you went into urology some years ago. Uh, we, you don't, we don't have to know when. Um, um, and, and then you went into urologic oncology. You know, I ask always our, our urologist colleagues, why? You had options. You could have gotten into kidney stones and endo, um, um, endourology. You could have gotten into, uh, you know, uh, sexual health. And, but you decided to go into urologic oncology. What influenced you? What was your, uh, did someone mentor you? How did that happen? Yeah, I mean, reflecting back, I'm super fortunate to have strong mentors that were mm. tremendous surgeons and more importantly, very thoughtful and tremendous clinicians. I saw how they helped patients through this really challenging part in their, in their life, cancer diagnosis. And fortunately, many of the urologic cancers are quite treatable, quite curable. Many times we don't even have to intervene. And I liked the idea of being a part of that um, process of curing people of cancer. And I also actually really 
enjoyed being a part of the process when things didn't go perfectly, when you had recurrences or there were metastases, helping patients, their family, their caregivers navigate through that um, intense time in their life. So ultimately, it's, um, it's very fulfilling. Patients generally do well. You get to be there with them through their whole cancer journey. And um, I think that's what ultimately resonated with me the most. Yeah, it's a wonderful, and I and I find prostate, you know, as you know, prostate cancer is really the only oncology I do as well, and um, and 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 it's highly rewarding. You typically have patients that oftentimes will probably, hopefully, not die from their diagnosis, and they're ready to, you know, reevaluate their uh, their goals and how they live their life, make changes. A huge motivated, they're, they're highly motivated group, and and just a really great group to work with and their families. Uh, I I tell you, I've, I've never had a, I probably have seen thousands of patients by now, and I've never had a scenario where it's like, ah, oh, that's a, uh, I don't, you know, just be human. Oh, that patient was a pain in the in the neck, uh, and that I, I've never had that scenario. Their families are great, and they're great. So. Um, yeah, thank you for the work you do. You, you definitely, as you know, our main contact in Sandy, in the California area, but certainly San Diego area. So love the work you do and your open mindedness to what I do. So as you know, I'm a holistic practitioner. I'm a non-surgeon and I, in urology and you since day one, you were very open to, you know, I hate to call it alternative therapies because that's not what I think it's the best approach nor a good name, really integrative or holistic methods. Is there a reason why you have some level of interest, maybe culturally, maybe your grandmother was an Ayurvedic practitioner, something that I say, yeah, of course my roots are, is there a reason for that? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a couple of things that, that kind of jump out first and foremost, to, to be honest, in our family, we, we do have, you know, I've got uncles and aunts that have mm-hmm. been kind of trained in, in kind of Ayurvedic practices. I remember mm-hmm. being like a kid and you had a cold and, you know, somebody's cooking up a concoction of turmeric and black pepper and <laughs> right. honey. And, you know, that's kind of what we did. So that's right. I think there was always that openness to it. But to be honest, the biggest driver were patients. Mm. You know, this is a question I get all the time as I'm telling patients what is going to be done to them. It's like, doc, what about me? You know, how does, how can I impact things with my diet exercise? And, and I got that question so much and I used to give them a fairly half baked answer, like, you know, moderate. There's some data that a Mediterranean diet might be okay and try to get some exercise. And, and as you know, that's, that's why I reached out to you initially. Mm. I was like, let me, you know, kind of understand who's got some expertise in this and, you know, all, all roads kind of pointed to, to Dr. Gio. And and we had a wonderful podcast Mm. on diet, exercise, supplements, sleep hygiene. Yeah. So this was totally a um, patient driven phenomena, largely. Mm. I think it empowers patients to be active participants in their in their cancer care. Mm-hmm. And um, and yeah, I think that openness comes from my background and then the the kind of motivation to pursue it comes from the patients. Yeah. Um, you know, and also generationally. So I got into the urology 20 years ago. And initially, you know, you had the old school docs, right? And they were like, well, what is this guy doing here? Who is this guy? You know, natural, come on. You know, and, and it was, so I got a little bit of pushback as we spoke before we started recording. Not a whole lot in urology. 
Um, uh, but but some uh, just because of old school methods of thinking, certainly the younger generation, more open minded to it. And this notion of there is no science behind it, that that's out the window. There's tons of science behind all the different lifestyle medicine protocols uh, for prostate cancer that shows, you know, it used to be that I used to say, look, you do these things because I want to be careful and I want to be objective with the information. Right. <laughs> It, you know, good quality of life as you go through prostate cancer, probably reduce the risk of heart disease and things like that. We don't know about prostate cancer. Well, I think we know a whole lot more about the uh, the effects of lifestyle medicine with prostate cancer specifically and its benefits. So, um, so, so there's a lot, you know, things have evolved uh, in a nice way, but yeah, most, um, a lot of the practitioners that I work with, talk to Tanisha and NYU, you know, have an Indian background, they always have they always have this curiosity about Ayurveda, whether it is because of their history, their family history, or which I actually went to when I went to school, I had an Ayurvedic practitioner, like a legit from India that he was going to school with me getting a naturopathic medicine degree as well. Um, so that was uh, I learned a lot about Ayurveda there. Um, prostate cancer, let's get right to it. Look, let's talk a little bit. I think we're going to focus our conversation a lot of active surveillance and um, a study that you, we were talking about that just came out. Uh, um, maybe you can highlight some of the key points of that study and, and, and we'll, we'll go right into, you know, how do you when do you say to a patient, look, you, you are a candidate for active surveillance? And then what is that process for you? So let, let's talk about that study that just came out in New England Journal a little bit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So. I mean, maybe just before jumping into it, um, I, one of the, the things about prostate cancer is that nearly certainly it's not, when it's diagnosed in a localized fashion, imminently fatal at all whatsoever. And we'll talk about that. And fortunately, in many, many cases, an intervention is never warranted. Mm. And I think it touched on something important, despite the fact that their, the, any given patient's cancer may never impact their longevity it's a real opportunity for us to impact them. Sometimes a cancer diagnosis is an opportunity for a patient to just kind of recalibrate everything. Mm. And um, in those early days, I think it's challenging for anybody and for a patient to say, okay, this is not like a big deal. Let me just put it on the back burner. Okay. But if we can tactfully introduce the importance of lifestyle medication, as you mentioned, You've got a very low grade, lower stage prostate cancer that's never going to kill you, but we really ought to talk about, you know, dropping 10, 15 pounds. We really ought to talk about your work-life balance, you know, what you're doing for general health, your exercise regimens and so on. So I think at that point, um, it's a massive opportunity, quit smoking, you know, whatever it may be that, hey, let's let's take a step back and, and reassess just kind of life in general, because many and they're motivated. They're motivated after, you know, there's a, a lot of debate and you might have seen on Twitter uh, and, and in conferences, whether or not we should call Gleason 6 prostate cancer. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm, I'm kind of torn. The reason for that is because, you know, Gle yeah, I understand Gleason, Gleason 6 like, likely will not cause mortality from prostate cancer. I get it. But man, that's a, an amazing motivator for people. You get a Gleason six. Uh, they they will do everything and anything, and they and as a result, their overall health improves dramatically. That's right. That's right. And I mean, you know, my other kind of main area of passion is testicular cancer. There is right. no stage four testicular cancer, right. 
And in these young men in their 20s and 40s, we're not necessarily spending a boatload of time as we get further and further out and their risk of recurrence goes for, decreases further and further about their testis cancer. We're talking about, you know, do you have a primary care physician? Are you yeah. checking your blood pressure? Are you exercising? Body you know? fat. So you were involved in a study with mm -hmm. testicular cancer and body fat showing that when they had higher body fat composition, their outcomes were worse than when they, when they were leaner. These are men with testicular cancer. Um, actually, I just saw that right before you came on. I was like, oh, well, that's an interesting study by Adija. So, you know, going back to um, kind of the question now that I've digressed quite a bit. Um, yeah, it's okay. So introducing prostate cancer, you know, fast forward or rewind 30, 40 years ago, you had prostate cancer, we treated it with other surgery or radiation. And the treatment, to kind of oversimplify, had some fairly significant side effects, both in terms of sexual function and urinary function, where mm -hmm. patients had trouble getting erections, maintaining them, and they would many times leak if they got surgery or perhaps have some uh, fairly debilitating urinary frequency and urgency. Over the last 30, 40 years, people have kind of recognized that a lot of prostate cancers are not dangerous and men are potentially likely to die with their prostate cancer than of their prostate cancer. And this isn't a new concept, um, but there's been kind of more and more high quality studies that help us understand what happens to patients if we watch them if we offer surgery or if we offer radiation. And, and probably the, the kind of gold standard for, for this type of questioning is a study called PROTECT, which was a um, base out of the UK. Mm -hmm. it, it was a study that took about 1,500 patients, 500, 1,500 patients with newly diagnosed prostate cancer, no evidence of metastases. Mm -hmm. Group A were monitored carefully with mm -hmm. PSA tests, rectal exams, repeat biopsies, which is kind of a standard active surveillance program. About 500, 500 of them received a radical prostatectomy, surgical removal of the prostate, and then about 500 of them received radiation therapy in kind of a standard of care format. So in 2016, this study reported out, and suffice it to say, that the rate of dying of prostate cancer at the 10-year mark, kind of regardless of your initial management strategy, was a whopping 1%. Mm -hmm. And I use that bit of data right out of the gates. Anytime I have a new patient with prostate cancer say, hey, listen, you've been diagnosed with cancer. If we did nothing, and this is a little bit of an embellishment of the study, your likelihood of dying in 10 years is 1%. We also know that the natural history of prostate cancer can take years and years before we start seeing things like metastases, deaths from prostate cancer, so that, that study, PROTECT, was recently updated just literally within the last week. It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And suffice it to say that the likelihood of dying of prostate cancer now at the 15-year mark um, was, uh, was also excellent at you know, roughly 1% to 2%. In those that Re didn't undergo treatment. Well, regardless, regardless whether, what they did, whether yeah, right, went, right. Um, whether Do, you received, surgery, what was the initial staging of the uh, of the of prostate cancer on average? Was it like low risk or low intermediate? Yeah, yeah, perfect question. So the initial studies about a, about seventy percent were low risk, kind of grade group one. About twenty percent were grade group 
two or Gleason score three plus four equals seven or four plus three equals seven. And the remainder were higher risk disease. Um, so it's important to know. And I think what you're kind of getting at is that yeah. there are some nuances here. Yeah. There's the kind of cancer characteristics. There's the patient health aspect of it. And then there's the, um, what the patient values and, and the patient's priorities in terms of what risks do I accept in terms of cancer recurrence potentially and metastasis development versus the risks of impact on my sexual urinary bowel quality of life. Right. So um, <clears throat> importantly, despite the fact that not a lot of people were dying, which is obviously a very good thing, we did see higher rates of metastatic disease develop in the people that were on a surveillance program and a significantly higher proportion of patients in the surveillance program did go on to require systemic therapy like Lupron medical castration to manage their prostate cancer. Did that group, the primarily, the primary uh, staging of that group, were they the higher uh, group or were those the higher, uh, the intermediate group or higher, or some of those were also part of the low, uh, great group one group. Yeah. And they did some um, pre-specified subgroup analyses. And suffice it to say that the higher risk patients did seem to develop metastatic disease, progress to hormonal therapy at a higher rate than the, than the lower risk patients. Right. All right. So the outcome of that uh, uh, study, which is a, a major study uh, that probably, I don't, you think guidelines will be adjusted as a result of the study or what, what do you think will happen? How would, how well, would it be applied clinically? You think? Yeah. I mean, so even, um, protect the 2016 paper had a massive impact on the combined guidelines by the American Urology Association, American Society of Clinical Oncology and American Society of Radiation Oncology, AUA, ASCO, ASTRO, where say for instance, there's very explicit verbiage in there that if you have a greater than 10 year life expectancy, you can do X, Y, or Z. Mm -hmm. And for instance, in the intermediate risk patients, active surveillance is a guideline recommended option. I think that having protect is going to allow us to just continue to expand the option for surveillance. And it's important to know though, that when you start on surveillance, this is surveillance. This isn't like good luck and good night. And ultimately it's not about, watchful waiting like we used to call it in the past. That's right. That's right. And ultimately about 60% of people had something change, whether that's a PSA, a stage migration, a grade migration, anxiety at the patient level, the provider level, where they said, you know what, it's time to switch gears and do something. So clinically, how, how does this kind of impact me? I try to diffuse the anxiety with a new cancer diagnosis and say, we have good quality data that you're not going to die anytime soon. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of bottom line. <laughs> and I think what I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, it just allows us to be a little bit more deliberate, a little bit more yeah. thoughtful and really come up with a personalized strategy for any given patient. What's your, what's your criteria? I still find that there's different criteria for di different practitioners on when they put patients on active surveillance. So in other words, age, so recently I had a 49-year-old with a Gleason 6 um, who I think most people would say, yeah, you're not a candidate because you're, you're too young and, and so forth. Um, and so that's that scenario. Um, there is the scenario of, you know, 
if it's a 70 year old or a 68 year old with a Gleason seven, four plus three low volume. So what's, what's your criteria in terms of when you would recommend it or, or, or recommend against it? Sure. And, um, you know, maybe we just start out with cancer characteristics Yeah, because the patient age comorbidity, all of that is, is just hard to, 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 to gauge. Well, we could say if you're older and you're sicker, my criteria for surveillance is pretty broad. Um, Mm. And this, I think, is where Protect can really help us, where I say, listen, your likelihood of dying of prostate cancer is is fairly low on the order of 1% to 2% Mm. in 15 years. You may develop metastases, which we can manage kind of as a chronic condition. So Mm. if they're older and they're sicker, and unless they really have advanced stage disease, grade group 4, grade group 5, I have a very low threshold to monitor them. So now we're talking about maybe a standard risk patient and a young patient. And, and my thinking on this as data becomes available has evolved. What's so, young uh, in your definition? Less than 55. Okay. Mm-hmm. So initially when I started, I would say that high volume grade group one disease or grade group one disease in younger patients or low volume grade group two disease made me a little bit nervous. The, the grade group one patient, so Gleason score three plus three plus six, really barring anything that's, that's outstanding, like a significant family history where they've seen multiple siblings and parents and grandparents die of metastatic prostate cancer. Mm. And they may have a BRCA mutation instance is low, but they, they might. Mm. I, I have very little problem starting out a surveillance program for almost anybody with grade group one, regardless of age, regardless of volume. Now, uh, define got, volume to our audience. Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. So, when you have when you obtain a biopsy, mm-hmm. there's some differences and kind of techniques and templates and so forth. What we mm-hmm. typically do is um, we biopsy the entirety of the prostate, and if there's anything suspicious on a pre-biopsy MRI, we'll preferentially oversample that area as well. Those are called targeted biopsies. Mm-hmm. There's no kind of clear cut, but if they've got more than about six, seven, eight cores, you know, more than about half the cores that do in fact have cancer, those are typically considered higher volume. Mm-hmm. If they've got cores on both sides of the prostate, for instance, that would be considered, you know, a little bit of a higher volume. So, right. so those patients um, are still absolutely candidates for surveillance. I do try to get as much information as possible. So there's the family history. There's the PSA index to the size of the prostate, which is PSA density. Mm-hmm. Suffice it to say, the lower the PSA density, so the bigger the prostate and the lower the PSA, the better. Mm-hmm. There's the um, core involvement. There's the MRI features. So if they've got an MRI with some highly concerning lesion extending outside of the prostate, that's not the same as a relatively mild appearing MRI. And then sometimes, um, sometimes in higher risk, low risk patients, which would be higher volume disease and, and younger patients in my estimation, I will actually get a molecular classifier on the biopsy tissue that was obtained, which can inform us, is there something potentially biologically more aggressive or dangerous behaving about, about this tumor? And that's like just, a genetic, genetic biomarkers. We're talking GPS or 
Decipher. Yeah, Polaris, Decipher, Oncotype, Polaris. Those are kind of the most commonly used ones, which give us some sense of what is the likelihood of having higher grade prostate stage grade prostate cancer if you took out your prostate or developing metastases or dying of prostate cancer. Before we continue, let's give a little love to today's sponsor. Today's sponsor is Genomic Prostate Score Test by MDX Health. Here's the deal, folks. I use this GPS test all the time. When a patient comes to me and says, look, I have this Gleason 6 prostate cancer. Am I a candidate for active surveillance? I think you are. You might be. But let's get genetic, the genetics of that prostate cancer tumor, right? Let's get the genetics and see how it behaves later on. And also, this is a great test for men who have low risk or low intermediate risk Gleason 7. So the GPS test analyzes prostate cancer tissue to provide information on how a tumor might behave. It identifies changes in DNA that may be driving the growth of your tumor. By identifying how likely your cancer is to spread, genomic testing can help determine how aggressive your treatment needs to be. Or do you need any treatment at all? Can you be safely on active surveillance or as we like to call it, proactive active surveillance? So have this discussion with your doctor on the GPS genomic test for prostate cancer by MDX Health. Our next sponsor partner has a product I use literally every day. I'm talking about AG1. You know, I've been using green powders mixed in drinks for a long time. and It has not always been a great experience, right? The powder clumps up a little bit. It tastes horrible. But you know what? You chug it anyway because it's good for you. AG1 changed the game. With In AG1, you have... 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source ingredients, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day the right way. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, and energy to help you recover and focus and help you age successfully. To make it easy, AG1 is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash Dr. Geo. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash Dr. Geo to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Take take out my prostate already. I mean, this is a prostatectomy by default. But you know, if I have to come once a year for the next eight years for biopsies, so what is it? And and some studies indicate that you could you could do every two years and just fine. So, what's your what's your uh, criteria there for follow up uh, biopsy? Yeah, it, it's a perfect question. And actually, on this, um, my my thinkings evolved quite a bit as well. Mm. So now we're. Now we've decided that we're we're likely going to em- embark on a surveillance program, and I used to be quite strict on performing a confirmatory biopsy within a year. Mm-hmm. And so basically, that means let's do another biopsy. Certainly, if I didn't do the first biopsy, or if they had an MRI, had not had an MRI, we get another M- we get an MRI, and then we do a biopsy within a year. And, and really, the, my. Um, thought process on this expanded when I talked to some thought leaders in this, Arvind George, Kara Watts, mm-hmm. Minaj Siddiqui. And I think this is also 
a, a conversation with mm. with the patient. You know, if that biopsy was like a traumatic, harrowing experience, we can say, hey, let's let's talk about maybe doing PSAs at every six months. I typically don't need to do them before every six months. Oh, interesting. Not every three months. I think most people do every three months. <coughs> I don't. I do them okay. every six months. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps it, with that being said, if they're like very nervous about about surveillance and they're saying, doc, take out my prostate or radiate it. I say, listen, let's just, we can watch this a little bit more carefully. If you want to do three months and then maybe expand, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so generally I start out with PSAs at six months and PSAs, as you're aware, are the least specific of the whole affair. So once a year, maybe depending on P- PSA in six months, MRI and their, uh, genomics, uh, um, that will all indicate family history, perhaps as well. Um, African American male. So I had an African American male with uh, that's uh, you know late forties, Gleason six, and he he opted to do surgery. And and most people in that scenario, uh, number one, young, number two, African American, like no one wants to do you know active surveillance in in that type of population just because of the higher risk of ag- aggressive cancer. Um, how would you see that? Would that change your mind? Would you be aggressive initially or no? <laughs> the, sh- the short answer is no. You know, I think mm-hmm. um, we have a conversation. They're at a higher risk of developing cancer. Mm-hmm. They're at a higher risk of potentially having more aggressive cancer in the future. But we can get a lot of information. Again, you know, we have the MRI features. We have the PSA density. We have the yeah. We have the molecular classifier and, and all the kind of information from the actual biopsy itself. I would you know, iterate to them that there is a good chance that something's going to happen over the next 10 to 15 years where we, where we have to do something. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not a reflex treatment in my opinion, nor is strong family history, nor is um, Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry, for instance. Right, right. You know, what I find in men in active surveillance, I w- I'm always making an assessment on personality types. So it's always like, hey, no, take it out. Or no, I, you know, it's always interesting because I do have patients, obviously I attract a group of patients that only want natural oftentimes and I have to, when they need something more aggressive, I have to kind of indicate that. Um, but some would say initially, I will never get my prostate removed. I'm never going to do a medical treatment. And then they start changing their mind after a while when they hear that a celebrity died from prostate cancer or they have a family member that had prostate cancer that's not doing well. They're like, oh, wait a minute, I, I may do something now. Um, the the data on active surveillance surveillance does show that some people do undergo treatment for anxiety purposes, not necessarily because they've progressed. How often do you see that? And and how often do you? What's the treatment approach in that scenario? Is it and oftentimes it's a conversation with your patient, but is it prostatectomy, radiation, or focal therapies? And if it is focal, what do you do? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I always tell patients, you know, from the get go that this is going to be a dynamic process. You've been told you have cancer. Your first gut reaction is going to be, I don't want to die. I don't want yeah. to die of cancer. Right. <laughs> and it's going to take you a little bit of time to understand and process that you're not about to imminently die of cancer. Mm-hmm. And that when you first see me, you're like, I want to be aggressive. Mm-hmm. I want it out. And then I want radiation and I want systemic therapy on top of it because I don't want to die. And then my job is to help decrease that anxiety. 
And sometimes even when I have an anxious patient, say a younger patient, that is a ideal surveillance candidate, I won't refuse treatment, but I'll almost mandate that they get a second and third opinion, see a radiation oncologist, see a medical oncologist. Because sometimes people just need to hear the message a couple of different times. Sometimes they need to hear from somebody other than myself who, you know, their personality could be just a little bit different. So I, it's easy enough to play into that fear and that anxiety. Which some, if we're honest, some, some, you know, some doctors do, some practitioners do play into it. And, you know, you know, I, I always say, look, if I'm a surgeon, I want to do a lot of surgery. There's no question about that. Um, I want to do tons of it. So, uh, um, uh, but it's not necessarily always the, the right thing for the patient. Listen, I'm, I'm a salaried physician. I'm in academics. There's other ways for me to like make more money, I suppose. <laughs> right. But like doing unindicated surgeries is not something that resonates with me. But you're right. right. I mean, over treatment of prostate cancer, big study that just came out that yeah. the rates of surveillance are improving, but there's still about 30, 40 percent of patients that are, in my opinion, inappropriately being treated. Right. Um, so. You know, it's not like I, I'm not really a, a believer in let's give you like treatment light, i.e. focal therapy, if you're a surveillance program. This is debatable, but that's my opinion. Yeah, you're treating you're treating the, the you're treating the prostate cancer for psychological reasons, not for uh, physiological reasons. In that scenario, yeah, and there's no free rides. I mean, yeah. focal therapy yeah. has right. got side effects. Whatever kind of um, strategy you embark on, and I think it's it's just dangerous. You know, it kind of opens the gate to start doing stuff for the sake of doing stuff. Yeah, like this is not going to kill you. And um, so, you know, the first major fork, fork in the road always to me is this, is this a cancer that merits treatment or not? Mm-hmm. If that mm-hmm. answer is not, that doesn't mean not. not or <laughs> focal therapy. That means <laughs> right. this is not a cancer that merits treatment. Yeah. Yeah. So let's just say that they've been properly and thoroughly evaluated. We're talking about grade group one disease. I actually um, don't have a major problem. It's a conversation. There's a little bit more risk involved with monitoring people with unfavorable intermediate risk disease that are in good health. And that's going to be, again, looking at volume of cancer, pattern for PSA density, molecular classifiers, you know, a little, a fairly comprehensive deep dive, a little bit more of an intensive surveillance program. Mm -hmm. Now, nearly certainly you're going to get a biopsy within a year. Um, PSAs every six months, repeat MRI at 18 months, at least every two to three years, another biopsy. So I have no problems watching those. If that patient really wants treatment and they're an appropriate candidate, I think focal would still be reasonable. Um, <clears throat> but you know, th- that's kind of my general and a healthy person, favorable intermediate risk disease and grade group one disease. Mm. All comers are, are basically surveillance candidates. What's your threshold with grade, uh, a grade two disease? So we have, you know, even for me, um, and, and once again, I, I'm like, yeah, I, I want less is more and I want, you know, lifestyle. And I think lifestyle is great. But even for me, once I see a four plus three Gleason, depending on many factors, of course, but typically I see a four plus three. I don't always feel as comfortable unless the patient is coming in and say, look, I'm definitely not going to do anything other than natural. But if they're kind of on the verge, I typically would say, you know, let's figure out what's the right treatment for you in a Gleason 7, 4 plus 3, as opposed to a Gleason 7, 3 plus 4. What are your thoughts on that? In general, 
Broad strokes. Totally agree. I mean, unless they're sick or there's kind of other stuff going on, typically a four plus three in my hands is going to, is going to get treatment. Um, And that, that's kind of a, you know, balanced discussion about surgery and radiation as standard options. Radiation generally with ADT, that's kind of the standard option, androgen deprivation. Um, Focal therapy kind of is a, it's going to be a, well-selected candidate running through the risks and benefits, letting them know that this isn't a standard option and that uh, we don't have the same degree of long-term follow-up. So yeah, unless they're really got some, some pressing issues, I don't love watching Gleason score four plus three equals seven unfavorable intermediate risk prostate cancer. At what point would you, so at what point um, would you say four plus three, you know what, you're 75 years old, some cold morbid morbidities, active surveillance, or even if it's like a Gleason 8, like at what point would you say even as a higher risk at a higher Gleason grade score, would you say active surveillance? What are the factors? Is it comorbidities and age primarily? The short answer is yes. And many times then the surveillance kind of goes into a hybrid active surveillance watchful waiting. Yeah. Um, you've got a, a cancer that typically merits treatment if you've got a more than a five, 10 year life expectancy, depending on the grade. If you decided you're not going to treat it today, I don't really have any reason to believe that you're going to want to treat it in three years. Mm. And I don't think it's like um, totally ridiculous or reckless or unreasonable. And actually, if the patients have made that decision for themselves, I think this is a perfect opportunity to take data from Protect and say, while we have guidelines that say you should have your cancer treated, you still should not die within 15 years of your prostate cancer. Now you may develop metastases Mm -hmm. and that's a risk that you have to kind of sort out for yourself. Yeah. If you say, yeah, I take on a, um, you know, 15, 20% chance of developing metastases and requiring treatment. And when I say requiring, because you may very well say, I don't want the treatment. Yeah. That's all well and good. So, you know, I, I think that, it's not crazy. I don't say, I don't shame people into, yeah. into it. Now, if they're 55 and they got grade group five prostate cancer. Yeah. That's I'm, I'm going to tell them, listen, our, our goal is to like keep you alive and <laughs> yeah. we probably can. Yeah. Um, but if they're older, sicker and it's, you know, yeah. four plus three equals seven, or they've got comorbidities, um, you know, there's age is totally a surrogate. You know, here in San Diego, I'm just mind blown by the number yeah. of incredibly healthy 80 year old, 90 year olds that have just surfed and ate well and not exactly. gotten obese. And that's right. You know, if they want their four plus three treated, I'm like, okay, you, you probably got another 10, 15 years in you. Which is funny is again, so it's sort of against the guidelines because the guidelines in general suggest after 70, don't even sort of screen. And it's like, do you, have you seen my 70 year old patient and my 75 year old patient? These guys are like super healthy. I mean, uh, you know, almost zero comorbidities. Some of them are on no meds for anything. So yeah, you're right. Yeah. You mentioned focal therapies a few times. Um, and so a, what are these type of focal therapies that are available and B, who's not a candidate for it? So isn't a tumor a tumor? So is it, even if it, a Gleason 6 or a Gleason 9 is a, still a tumor, and, and if we have no indication that there's, it's outside the prostate, shouldn't we treat it or have the ability to treat it successfully with whatever technology is available? So A, what are the focal therapies? And B, 
why does it make a difference in terms of what Gleason score it is before you treat it focally? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the whole genesis for focal therapy is can we still treat a prostate? I mean, many people ask, like, hey, doc, can you just take out the part of that's cancerous? And the short answer is generally no. But can we treat my cancer without affecting the entirety of the prostate and exposing me to the risks of urinary dysfunction and sexual dysfunction? And that's a very reasonable question. And there's been amazing people and amazing technologies really over the you know last 50 years or so that have investigated this so the idea is not to treat the the whole prostate but just to treat the areas that are involved with cancer and focal can mean you know one little spot it can mean half the prostate it can mean three quarters of the prostate there's that's different right. kind of definitions that's a very good point actually because some people think that focal just means the local cancer area no it can mean half the gland actually and so the technologies that exist, the ones that have kind of been around the block for a long time are cryoablation, where you put in probes through the perineum, the space between the scrotum and the rectum under ultrasound guidance, and you freeze, and then you thaw, and then you freeze, and you thaw, and that process of freeze-thaw kills cells. That's called cryoablation. <clears throat> Another technology is called high-intensity frequency ablation, where now you have a ultrasound that's both diagnostic and therapeutic, as the name suggests it emits high frequency energy that can be guided to the areas of interest. Um, that's an incisionless procedure and something that's attractive. Mm -hmm. There's Tulsa, which is quite simply transurethral HIFU. So yeah. now instead of coming from the rectum up, you're coming from the urethra out. There's some theoretical benefit to that in terms of preserving some of the critical structures, including the nerves and so forth that are involved in erections. Is Tulsa FDA approved now? There have been some pivotal, pivotal trials, like many of these ablation technologies. The approval is for tissue destruction and not implicitly for prostate cancer treatment right. necessarily. Right. Then there's irre irreversible electroporation, where you have energy traveling between electrodes that disrupt cell membranes and kills them. There's focal laser therapy, which is exciting. There's focal radiation therapy, which I think is kind of coming through the pipelines in a bigger and bigger way. In my opinion, it's wonderful that there's newer and newer technologies. I don't think yeah. that anyone's necessarily kind of a the best winner. Yeah. The important thing is that they're actually being coupled with imaging. You know, our MRIs are getting better and better and sharper and sharper so we can more accurately identify where the tumors are and um, make sure we're treating them, treating them comprehensively and not leaving cancer behind and also sparing the critical structures. Fabulous. Listen, um, I'm going to let you go on with your day. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on Dr. Aditya Bragodia. I, I kept repeating your name because, man, I don't want to butcher his name. I really don't want to butcher his name. So <laughs> I kept repeating it prior to you coming on. Um, thank you so much, Aditya. How can people be in touch with you if they want to connect with you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, more than happy to offer my um, my two cents on your cancer diagnosis. I'm at University of California, San Diego. Mm -hmm. By all means, you'd be more than welcome to uh, to look me up. Um, I have a, a fairly modestly respectable social media presence. You can reach out to me directly. Um, those are going to be the the um, the primary ways of kind of getting a hold. What's of your me. social media handle? 
It's at Aditya Bagrodia, A-D-I-T-Y-A-B-A-G-R-O-D-I-A. I will say, Gio, just, just to kind of answer the second half of your question, focal therapy, surveillance, surgery, radiation, these are all individualized decisions that should be made in conjunction with your caregivers, with providers. And, and you kind of talked about who, why not focal therapy. We just don't know enough about yeah. the long-term efficacy. If you've got a gangbusters tumor that's occupying the entirety of your prostate, you're not going to be a good candidate, um, right, for right. instance. So so I, I get this question it may, all it the may time. It may sound good, and, and, and we've seen cases. We've all seen cases where someone's out there is selling a bill of goods, and I remember the early high food days when they used to go to Mexico and some of these guys came back and they had a recurrence and, or bad side effects. And now you have to deal with the side effects of this bad high food from back in the day. High food has come around, around and it's much better now. Um, but definitely there are people out there that are, you know, unscrupulously just selling a bill of goods that is not true. So that's a very good point. Um, it, it's the right treatment, if any, for the right person for for a certain specific type of prostate cancer that they may have. You got it. You got it, Gio. That's perfect. Well, thank you so much. I will put your uh, your uh, website and uh, handle, uh, social media handle on our show notes. Again, thank you so much. Aditya, Aditya Bragogia from UCSD, University of California, San Diego. Thanks so much, man. I appreciate it, and I'll see you soon. It was great, Gio. Thanks, buddy. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Dr. Gio podcast. You can watch all episodes of this podcast and much more by subscribing to my YouTube channel on youtube.com forward slash Gio Espinoza ND. If you love what you heard today, you can help by leaving a five-star review of the podcast on Apple and Spotify, as each review helps us reach more men who are serious about improving their urological health and how to function better with age. And for the latest research and actionable takeaways in the world of men's health and integrative urology, sign up for my newsletter at drgeo.com. I'll see you next time. And now for a brief disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only, and we're not forming a doctor-patient relationship through this medium. The use of the information and all links associated with this podcast is at the listener's risk and is not to replace medical advice from a physician or a healthcare practitioner. Lastly, Thoughts and opinions related to this podcast are my own and may not reflect the views of any institution or organization I'm associated with.